you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. Good evening, my name is Erin. So happy to be with you guys tonight. And over the last several weeks, we've been going over the stained glass, the stories of the stained glass. And tonight we're going to be covering this one to your right, the first one here, uh, the incarnation. The incarnate. In the world, but not of it. What exactly does that mean? If you observe the stained glass on your right, you'll see the symbols that represent incarnation. The cross and the crown, which represents that the king was born to die. Jesus, that's represented in the root of Jesse. The star of David, which represents that Jesus is the son of David. The Roman helmet and the coins represent the time period and culture that Jesus was born in the days of Caesar. Camel and pyramid represents the journey and the flight to Egypt. The gold frankincense and myrrh represents the wise men coming to greet Jesus with gifts. And the two doves represent the coming of God to man, the incarnation. Now let's take a look at the passage of the incarnation, which is Matthew 1, 18 through 25. And it reads this. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, verse 24, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Will you bow your heads and pray with me once more? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you speak to us tonight through what it means to be incarnate, to be representative of who you are and how you came to the earth, to be with us and among us in Jesus' name. Now, this story of Jesus coming to earth shows us how to be incarnate, to come down and to live among. Jesus lived among us, understood us, didn't do anything for 30 years, but listened and lived among the people. He understood the culture. Now, not that he didn't understand all things all the time in all places, but he lived long enough to establish credibility with the people that he was living among. Long enough for the people to believe that he truly indeed understood their lived experience. Can you imagine that? For 30 years, Jesus just listened, watched, and lived among. If we, are to, if we were to correlate it to Jesus living among us today, 
It would be as if he understood systems, systems of the world, such as the FDA, and how the food is designed to keep people sick, and the medicines are too expensive to keep people well, because he lived among, it, among them, he understood that. Jesus understood that the system was built on money and those with power creating the need and also the solution for capital gain. Jesus understood the system of patriarchy, how the women were seen as second-class citizens, names erased from work, credit not given, the most vulnerable in the presence of powerful men. But Jesus only understood that because he lived among them. Jesus understood the economic system, how the poor were looked down upon by the people who made them poor and upheld systems designed to keep them poor because he lived among them. Jesus was highly incarnational. He saw it for himself. And Jesus gained an understanding of who they were. And then he began his ministry. On Friday afternoon, um, kind of last minute, Kendall and I were invited to um, some friends of ours from Roosevelt Community Church to come to this meeting by, uh, it was run by this gentleman named Robert Guerrero, who has a passion for the Spanish-speaking church, and he was doing a training. And so before the meeting started, Kendall and I started talking to him, and he starts talking about how he's from Washington Heights. And if you've seen the movie In the Heights, raise your hand if you've seen it. If you're about it, yes, okay. So he goes, yeah, if you've seen In the Heights, that is exactly my neighborhood. Like, like to a T, all the beautiful parts of my life was In the Heights. And as he began speaking, he breaks out in dance and song, and I'm like, man, he really is In the Heights. Um, but he didn't actually do that, but I imagined it because he was so passionate about this movie. Um, but one thing that I really loved about his training is that he began to talk about the blueprint for a flourishing church. A flourishing church is a church that is highly incarnational. And he began to share how the goal of a flourishing church is shalom, peace in the city, for that is God with us. That the goal of a flourishing church is the, is the end of a systemic systemic problems that keep peace from being among us, for that is God with us. The goal of a flourishing church is to speak truth to power, for that is God with us. So to be incarnate is to be in something, among something, and then because of your presence, you bring peace, justice to something. To be incarnate means to address the entirety of the system. So how did Jesus practice incarnation? Obviously, he was incarnate coming to earth, but even in his living on the earth, how is Jesus practicing incarnation? Jesus's miracles spoke to the entirety of the systems that he was in and among. He did it while performing miracles. In Mark 5, 5 through 17, it says they went across the lake to the region of Jurisinus. I should have probably practiced that word, but that's right. Chase is got me. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. 
When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. And the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, can you imagine that, 2,000 pigs, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and they were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When Jesus came, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed in his right mind and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Now, as Kendall and I sat in this training with Robert Guerrero from In the Heights, he asked us this question. Who was the demonic in this story? Was it the man who was oppressed by the demon? Or was it the ones who were upholding systems that allowed the demon to manifest? Who was the demonic? Was it the man who was overcome, yelling and cutting himself, or the ones who told Jesus to leave and to get out after he had just cast the demon out of the man who was oppressed? Was it the one who had the demon cast out of him, or the normal people who cared more about the economy than human life? For to be incarnate, A present church, a flourishing church, means to address the entirety of the system. For that is what Jesus did. And let us be like Jesus. Let us not just deliver the man who is demon-possessed, but let's ask ourselves, what environments are we creating that's causing him to be demon-possessed? Let's not just serve the poor and the homeless, but let's ask ourselves, what policies are we voting for that are causing them to continue to be poor and homeless? Let's not just say that black lives matter, but let's ask ourselves what ideologies and theologies have we been listening to that have discipled us into believing that they don't matter. Let's not just address that black indigenous people of color are marginalized, but let's ask ourselves what are the systems at play that make them marginalized? For to address the system is to bring shalom, true peace to a city, to a people, to a community. Jesus was highly incarnational. Not too long ago, I had heard a lot about a gentleman named Adam Thomason. He used to be a pastor here in the city of Phoenix. And Kendall had told me a lot about him. Chris had told me a lot about him. He's a really cool guy. He's very artistic, creative, all the good stuff. And long story short, I got in touch with him, and he's possibly helping us with a creative justice project that we're doing here at Kaleo, a documentary project. And so I got a chance to talk with him on the phone, and we were talking about the project, and I was pitching a deck and all these other things to him. And he wondered, he said, "Um, I'm wondering why you use the phrase racial reconciliation. I'm just really curious, because what I know about you, you probably would never use that phrase. 
And I told them that the reason why I was using it is because I know a lot of the other people in churches that we're pitching to, and although they may not understand fully what that means, that's something they want to be on the right side of history when it comes to racial reconciliation. So that's why I was using it, because maybe people don't have a full understanding of what it is, but they want to be a part of it. And he understood, and we talked more about the project before hanging up. And a couple weeks later, I was scrolling on Instagram and saw that Adam had gone to the Equal Justice Initiative Memorial and filmed in real time a reaction to seeing the nation's first comprehensive memorial dedicated to thousands of African-American victims of racial terror lynchings, which opened in April 2018. And while walking through the memorial, I was watching the video and he began to reflect again on the word reconciliation. And he said something in the video that I'll never forget. He said, reconciliation is an accounting word. For in order for something to be reconciled, you have to give a full account of what was done. Everything must be accounted for. So for us to truly see racial reconciliation, we must give an account to every racial injustice that has happened in our country, which is messy and hard and difficult, but it must be done if we are to build multi-ethnic communities of healing and to exist together as a flourishing church, a highly incarnational church. If you take a look at a couple of the pictures I have up on the screen, you'll see that the EJI Memorial of African-American Victims of Racial Terror Lynchings has over 800 steel pillars. Each pillar represents counties in the United States where lynchings of African-American bodies were done. And these pillars contain over 4,400 names engraved on them. That's over 4,400 African-American people murdered in the United States for being black. And what makes this memorial interesting to me is that not only do they have over 800 steel pillars hanging for people to actively see, but next to it, they've created duplicates of these pillars so that counties in the United States can come and claim the pillars and set up a memorial in their county for the African-American lives that were taken. An initiative they've created to see racial reconciliation and restorative justice in the United States. But there are still hundreds and hundreds of pillars that are unclaimed. And when I saw the duplicates and I saw the photo and I saw the video that Adam was posting, the unclaimed pillars, I said to myself, this is the state that we are in in America. There are those of us who are willing to give an account, but there are many of us among us who are unwilling to. And we cannot see the healing that we seek until we are willing to give a full account. And what we feel at times in this country is that tension. We feel it in the attempt to erase history. We feel it in the refusal to acknowledge history. We feel it in the banning of critical race theory. We feel it in the refusal to accept the idea that maybe we don't have it all figured out. So what would Jesus do? Jesus, remember, was highly incarnational. And Jesus did it at the cross. The only reason we have been fully reconciled to God is because all of our sins have been accounted for. 
Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for the sins that have been accounted for. And what makes forgiveness so powerful is that it is given after we have given an account. What makes mercy powerful is that it is bestowed after we have given an account. That's what makes love so powerful, is that it doesn't overlook sin. It doesn't overlook injustice. It seeks justice and then chooses to love in spite of it. Love seeks justice. Jesus was highly incarnational, and we are the incarnate, the expression of Jesus on the earth. As the band comes up, um, I would invite you to take a moment to be silent in the presence of Jesus. My challenge to you tonight is to ask yourselves, if we've been living amongst our neighbors for a year, but still don't know what the overall systemic problems are, are we really listening to our neighbors? Are we really living among our neighbors? Are we really living in but not of. Living in the world, but not of it, doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye and become ignorant of systemic problems in the world. But living in the world and not of it means that we are fully aware of the systemic problems. And because we know what they are, we bring shalom, peace, justice and equality to the spaces and the places that we occupy. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you give us the ability to hold space for stories, names, wrongs, injustices, and sufferings that have happened. For to be in the world and not of it, is to be incarnate, born of something different. Would you help us to bring peace to our city? For that is what you did. We hold the space to follow your ways, to practice your ways, and to live like you.
For more resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.